0: This message was presented at the GYC 2012 Conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to, to talk and to listen and to share and consider um, these topics We pray, Father, that the things that we have heard, the things that we have seen might transform us, that they would not just be more information that we can uh, put on our intellectual bookshelf, but rather that these things might, um, might help us to become men and women who are ready to be used by you in a way that we've never been used before in the way um, the likes of which this world has never seen men and women used before. We thank you in advance for making this experience um, so simple for us and bringing it so close to us within our very reach. I pray that each one of us would choose no other way than the way you choose for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, our last session together, we, we talked about how um, <clears throat> the catalyst for one accord, whatever the catalyst for one accord is, it was not merely planning to be on one accord, but it, it had to be something that was drastic, something dynamic, something that, something that caused all of the disciples, as different as they were, Uh, They were different in temperament. They were different in terms of their uh, personalities and even in terms of their perspectives on life. Um, They came from different backgrounds, etc. But there was something that towered above all of these other differences and it united them and allowed them to experience um, being on one accord. Um, I want to look at something here. Take a look. I want to read to you a couple of the instances um, that we find the phrase one accord. And uh, in Acts chapter one, verse 14. The Bible says these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Acts chapter two, verse one. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Acts chapter two, verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Acts four twenty four. And when they heard that, They lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Acts 5, 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Um, And on the negative side, Acts 757. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. Uh, Acts eight six and the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Acts chapter twelve verse twenty. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him. And having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend. Desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. Acts 15:25, "It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Again, in Acts 18:12, on the negative side, and when Galileo was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment. See in Acts 1929. And the whole city was filled with confusion and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions and travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. You know, the interesting thing is uh, you will you will ultimately all human beings will ultimately have to be on or to experience one accord. When you study the scriptures, that's what the crazy thing is. Why? Because there's only how many sides? There's only two sides. So you're going to either experience one accord on Christ's side or you're going to experience one accord on the devil's side. And when you're on the devil's side, his agenda and what he deems is most important is what you're going to submit your desires to. uh, Versus when you're on the lower side, obviously his agenda and what he feels is most important is what you will have to submit yourself to. So even wicked men and women experience one accord. Sadly, they probably experience it more frequently than God's people do, um, as, as, evidence, as is evidence in Genesis chapter 11. They got together in defiance of God, and they all said, hey, let's build a tower that reaches all the way up to heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's, let's do this. We don't believe God, and um, I believe even after the Lord confounded their languages, knowing the hardness and stubbornness of human hearts, that they still attempted To work together, it was only because they simply could not that they eventually left off from working on the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. But everyone will experience one accord, I believe, whether for the Lord or for the enemy by the time that this thing winds up. Hopefully we will be on the Lord's side. So what is it that they experienced that is, the believers in the book of Acts that allow them to experience one accord. I want to read to you what they experienced. Are you ready? Nobody's ready, but I'm going to read anyway, and I hope you, you'll get ready in the process. This is from the 20th chapter of John. And when she had thus said, verse 14, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him and I will take him away. Jesus says unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, "Raboni," which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, peace be unto you. And when he had so said, she showed unto them his hands, or excuse me, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger, behold my hands and reach hither thy hand. And thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life. Through his name, what happened? What happened? What was the thing in the lives of the early church, the apostles in specific, what was the thing that transpired that became to them the catalyst for uh, the revolution and more specifically the catalyst for their being on one accord? I believe it was the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is what brought about a transformation in the lives of the apostles. There's only two things that we can see from the scriptures that separate the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus and before the resurrection of Jesus. Two things. One of them was uh, the subject of our first two presentations. That is that they saw Christ as he was revealed in the scriptures, they began to look at the Old Testament scriptures through the messianic or through a messianic lens. That was transformative in their lives. The second thing is that they had a, a personal experience with the risen Lord. That's it. Now, when Jesus was with them, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, I'll go so far as to say that probably there was a doubt as to uh, or, or questions or at least ignorance concerning the divinity of Jesus Christ. But after his resurrection and after he opened the scriptures to them, this became crystal clear, I believe, in the minds of the apostles as to the identity of Jesus Christ, the complete identity of Jesus Christ. And this caused them to Uh, reshuffle, as it were, their their cards, their priorities in their lives. So seeing Christ as he was revealed in the scriptures and seeing and experiencing the resurrected Jesus is what brought about one accord. Now, think about it. You have these apostles who come from different places, different backgrounds. They have different uh, political beliefs and what have you. But when they have an experience with the resurrected Jesus, this causes them, or wouldn't this cause them, to rethink everything in their lives? I mean, think about it. How many dead people, I mean, how many people have you seen killed who have come back to life? After three days? Or, or let, let, after predicting that they would be killed? How many people have you seen? Now, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, none. <clears throat> Neither had the apostles. And so when Jesus is resurrected, just, you know, imagine with me, you're there in the room. The Bible says that they were there because they were afraid of the Jews. That was the dominant motivating factor at that time in their lives. And the door is locked. They were not having church. I've never been to a church where you lock the doors once everybody gets in. It's a fire hazard. They won't even allow you to do it. So here they are, and they are afraid that someone is going to find them out because, man, maybe they're going to do to us what they did to Jesus and even worse. And guess what? Jesus comes and walks right through the door and says, peace be unto you. Now, Mary had already Mary had already told them that, hey, I have seen the Lord. But they said, oh, Mary, you're just crazy. You're having another episode you're seeing things you are overwhelmed and overcome with grief it's not logical that you would have seen him and 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 anyway why would he have shown himself to you first obviously the other disciples had gone and they had seen that the tomb was at least Peter and John had gone and seen that the tomb was empty but when Jesus walks through the door this is something like they have never experienced And of course, the first time Jesus appears, which is um, uh, which apparently is on that that resurrection evening, that Sunday evening, perhaps. Now, eight days later, Jesus walks in again. First time, Thomas was not there. And Thomas said, man, I refuse to believe. I want to see. And Jesus comes in and says, peace be unto you, Thomas. Come here, my friend. This is what you wanted, isn't it? Put your fingers in touch. Handle me. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. The Bible says that Jesus appeared on several other occasions to his followers. When they were in the upper room together in the book of Acts, I believe that is what permeated and dominated all of their discussion. I don't think they were having theological debates. I don't know. Perhaps you might disagree with me. But I don't think they were having any theological debates. I don't think they were asking who's going to be first in the kingdom. Now, we know, of course, that there was uh, there was confession and there was uh, 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 um, there was a. What was the word I'm looking for? Not only confession, but there was reconciliation and things that were taking place. Why? It's just like we talked about earlier. Um, I don't necessarily think that uh, that 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 Peter was saying to John, hey, man, I see things your way now. Yeah, you're right. You're better than me. You deserve to be on the right hand on the left. No, no, no. That's not what was going on. But I believe that in that reconciliation and in that the communication that was taking place there in the upper room, They were confessing uh, their foolishness and their ignorance in allowing their differences to supersede Christ. How foolish I was to allow this disagreement to cause both of us to have a clouded picture of Jesus. Brother, I want you to forgive me. Jesus is alive. Jesus lives. So the resurrected Christ Was that dynamic event, that dynamic experience that transformed and caused them to look at everything else in their lives and say, this deserves our primary attention. Whatever other differences there are that exist between us, they are certainly not as important as this. They're certainly not as important as this. Man, why don't we have those types of experiences? I believe perhaps one of, the, one of the reasons is because we have not had a personal experience with the resurrected Christ. I believe some of us are hanging on because, you know, uh, of our culture. We have an Adventist culture. You've heard about that. And the Adventist culture says that I'm going to be here. And even though I am not a believer in the truest sense of the word, I'm just hanging around. And as a result, the resurrected Christ doesn't have a priority in my life. The board doing what I want the board to do has a priority in my life. You thinking like I think is my priority. You agreeing with my plans and my processes, that's the most important thing to me because Christ is not. But in the upper room, there was nothing more important than the resurrected Jesus. Hey, guys, if Jesus, if Jesus is who he had been trying to get us to understand, he was all along. And since he is alive and since he's interceding, man, how does this change things? This means that when he told us we had to go forward and preach. You mean all along? All along. It was never an earthly kingdom. that he was after. And now, do you remember when we heard him praying in, in the garden, do you remember what his prayer was? That the world might believe that the Father had sent him based on our testimony or our oneness. Wow. Everything now has to be reprioritized. Christ now becomes First. He's the most important thing. Now, I think one of our challenges has been, and I alluded to it earlier, one of our challenges has been instead of trying to get everyone to focus on Christ, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that even when we have good intentions, even when we have good intentions, and please please believe me, I'm not ignorant of the fact that it is very much possible Even when when it comes to focusing on Christ for people to have divergent views and and different pictures. But but please bear with me. Even when we have good intentions about reforming and changing and getting things to be the way that they are, that they should be. All right. What we tend to do instead of lifting up Christ, we lift up what's wrong with what is going on. For instance, in my church. Man, if look, we need to have a workshop on the correct way or the correct type of music to listen to. We need to have a workshop because our young women are dressing improperly. We need to have a workshop on on, on dress reform. We need to have a workshop on X, Y and Z. Do you understand what I'm saying? But very seldom do we say, man, you know what? We're, we're tr- there's some challenging things that are going on. Let's get the entire church to focus on Jesus, his life, his death. And his resurrection. And let's see what takes place when he becomes the priority. And then the question is asked once Jesus becomes the priority, the question then is asked, what must I do to be like him? You see, people, even in our churches, are not eager to know what they're doing wrong. If you didn't already know that. In fact, um, in the New Testament, I believe it's, it's Peter who says it, um, and he says that, that each one of us should always be ready to give an answer. An answer of what? A, a what? Now, 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 listen, listen. The key word in that phrase is answer. So in order for us to be able to give an answer, it means someone must first ask the question. You see, so my business, my business is to live a life or to present Christ in such a way that it moves people to ask a question, not to make it my business to give people answers. You see? My job is to lift up Jesus. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost, right? Peter lifted up Jesus. And when Peter lifted up Jesus, they asked, what must we do? And you see that question being repeated over and over in the book of Acts. And, and, and we've, we've said this before. It might sound redundant, but please, it is not. It's the most powerful principle that any of us could live by if we lift up Jesus. If we lift up Jesus, he promises That he will draw. Our message must be centered on Christ. And once he becomes the most important thing, and once he is lifted up as he should be lifted up, then men and women will ask the questions. Well, how how do you think that our lives are different? You know, one of the things that um, (laughs) this is so simple and it's, it's, it's fascinating to me how. The simplest things in life sometimes are the most complex. The simplest things are the most complex. And we, we, separate, we separate ordinary everyday things from the spiritual things. But we're told actually that um, the, 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 the things in everyday life or the laws in the natural world, etc., are a reflection of the laws that exist in the spiritual world. So let's say I'm, I'm having a conversation with my wife. If I make it my business to point out everything my wife does wrong. How do you think that's going to work out? Hmm? That's not going to be great at all. Not so hot. right? That's going, to be a, that's going to make for a horrible situation in my home. If I make it my business to try to do everything in my power to make her life easier and do everything in my power to be the best help that I can and do everything in my power to lift up Jesus, then what's going to happen? If my wife... Does do something wrong, you know. We we, we have um, when you're when you're when when counseling, I tell people about uh, what's called teachable moments. When you're if you if you teach, there's teachable moments. Any teachers here? Okay, we got some teacher teacher here. So if you are teaching, there are times when your students are not receptive to what you have to say, and you have to create teachable moments in personal relationships. There are Teachable moments as well. And uh, I'm just trying to talk practically to you guys right now, but I'm going to jump back on the subject. This is a commercial break here. So there are there are teachable moments in relationships as well. And um, the reason I think this is important is because you come to a place like this, you have some great information, and you want to go back to your church, and you're like, and nobody else feels you. They're like, yeah, that's, that's nice. And you're like, oh, the, the church is just going to... Oh, nobody's ready for Jesus to come and you give up. I don't want you to go back with that type of an attitude. So here's how it works. When my wife and I do counseling, we tell people about teachable moments in the relationship. And one way to create a teachable moment, because it's one thing to wait for them, but you can also create them. One way to create a teachable moment in a relationship, we encourage husbands and wives to read. Read a book together. Read a book that has something to do with husband and wife relationship type stuff. Right. So when you're reading one of these books, you will undoubtedly come across a situation or a story that tells you about something stupid and foolish that someone else has done. All right. And you can both together. You can step back and say that was dumb. Right. Yeah, And one accord. You're agreeing. You're like, man, that was That was real dumb. All right. But because you can now agree on that, what generally happens is a teachable moment has been created because I can turn to my wife and say, have I ever done anything dumb like that? Now, if she's been waiting for nine weeks to drop something on me, you understand what I'm saying? If she's been waiting for nine weeks to tell me something. When we've reached this point, this is the teachable moment. And she now if she's wise, she won't give all nine weeks worth right there. She'll just give one thing and say, well, you know, not exactly like that, but, you know, kind of like this. And I can say, what, really? I've already agreed how foolish the behavior is. And now when she reveals to me that I actually am doing something that's similar because I've been outraged at what I saw on the page now, now. Notice how this happens. I am not she's not asking me to look at myself first. She's we're looking together at someone else. You know, it's always easier to talk about someone else than it is to talk about yourself. Right. So now we've agreed on someone else. And now I'm asking her about me. We've created a teachable moment. She can then share with me. You understand what I'm doing. Yes. Why not? exercise something as simple as that which works in a in a husband-wife relationship why not uh, uh look at that in a bigger picture instead of me correcting the things that are wrong in my church how about getting them to look at something positive let's say in the person of jesus or even something negative that we find in the scriptures and then in those moments of reflection say lord I'm praying, Lord, create a teachable moment. Pray that someone at that prayer meeting or at that that Bible study in the house says, man, do we do anything like this? And you're like, thank you. Thank you, Holy Ghost. Then you have to put on not help me, Lord, not to give it all, not to whip out the list and say, well, actually, yes, I do have a few suggestions as you turn through the pages. But just to give one thing and wait for the next teachable moment. So here are the disciples in the, in the upper room and the disciples in the upper room are not trying to fix one another. They have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus and they've also seen themselves. And as a result of seeing themselves, they are humbled. Christ has been exalted and now his plan, now his agenda is number one priority a w tozer in his book the pursuit of god uh, writes this uh, this telling telling illustration has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other they are of one accord by being tuned not to each other but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Powerful, powerful, powerful quotation. So many of our attempts at being on one accord are like what was mentioned. We want to become unity conscious, the popcorn and the smoothies. And we want to get together and we want to focus on one another. And we want to put down our differences. If we could just focus on pushing down our differences, then that would help us to draw closer together. But what we learn here is that's not how it works. What we need to do instead of focusing on. Differences or what we think will draw us closer together is we need to all be focused in on Jesus. Everyone focuses on Jesus. And there in the upper room. Everyone. Isn't it amazing? Everyone for the first time. Was focused on Jesus. For the first time. It wasn't when Lazarus was resurrected, that everybody was focused on Jesus. It wasn't even his triumphal entry into Jerusalem when everyone was focused on Jesus. Not his death, not at any of those times. But it's there in the upper room where Jesus finally takes his rightful place in the minds of the members of the early church. And it's with that frame of mind that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in the book of Acts. Now, you know that in the book of Acts. um, okay. before I go there, I'm going to go here. There's perhaps no no one whose life had a more profound reaction to the resurrected Christ than Peter. Would you agree? He was the most outspoken, brutally outspoken. And uh, he made more mistakes, perhaps publicly than anyone else. Yet his life was the most markedly changed because on the day of Pentecost, who was it that was moved by God to stand up and begin to preach? It was Peter. Who was the one who was speaking with such boldness and power that men and women were giving their hearts to the Lord Jesus? By the thousands, it was Peter. Let me share a, um, a passage of scripture with you. And uh, somebody shared this with me and they suggested something and I'll suggest it to you. I'm not dogmatic about this, but I simply want to ask you to think about the possibilities. Is that all right? This is from First Corinthians, chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, verse 1, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 5. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present. But some are fallen asleep. Notice verse five. That he was seen of Cephas. That's Peter. And the Bible says, and then of the twelve. Now, the scriptures don't record anywhere a private meeting between Peter and Jesus, right? We just read from John chapter 20 that Peter, we can assume rather that Peter was there when Jesus came those two times because the Bible said that it was only Thomas who was missing the first time. But when Paul is giving his account of things, he says that Jesus appeared to Peter and then he appeared to the 12. Is it possible that Peter had a private encounter with Jesus? Is it possible that Jesus and Peter had a one-on-one? Now, again, I told you I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but what if they did? What if they did? What do you think that experience would have been like? As Peter and Jesus' eyes meet, maybe for the first time, Since those eyes have met when Jesus is leaving the judgment hall and Peter has just rejected his Lord for the third time. Peter, we know, had a collective meeting with Jesus, but it is perhaps it is possible that Peter also had a one on one encounter with Jesus. And this would, to me anyway, it would reflect why Peter's transformation was so marked. Some would say even more marked than that of the other disciples because of Peter's one-on-one experience with Jesus. I've got two, two things. Well, actually, one, two more things, and then I'll be done. The first one is this. Have you had a one-on-one encounter with Jesus? Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus? I'm not saying where Jesus shows up mystically and says, I am he. Obviously, if you've come to any of these, we've talked about seeing Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures and allowing uh, allowing the Christ who is revealed in the scriptures to um, to become a reality in your personal life. Meeting Jesus. I remember One of the first or yeah, one of the first times that um, spiritual things became a reality to me. I remember I was um, I was studying my Bible. I was studying my Bible. I had just, uh, you know, I had just gone to college and a few months earlier before I had come to college, I had been living out on the streets and I was. uh, I'd been kicked out of my parents' home, and I was just doing my thing. And uh, all of a sudden, within a short amount of time, a a series of events took place. I ended up in a canvassing program trying to knock on doors as unconverted as I was. And within that 10-week program, the Lord radically changed my life, and I found myself in a place uh, in, in a Christian school trying to study about Jesus. And all of this had taken place, it wasn't even three months, actually. It wasn't even an entire summer. And uh, I remember one of the days I had gotten up in the morning, and I was reading and studying my Bible. And as I'm reading and I'm studying about the life of Jesus, I remember just sitting there. You know, it's dark outside, my roommate was asleep, and I'm seated at my desk with my little light, you know. And tears just began streaming down my eyes. Because the Savior was becoming a reality to me. I was, remember how we talked about that participation? That participation, I saw myself as a participant, not necessarily in Christ, but I saw myself as a participant in his death. I saw myself as being responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And that began a a, a radical change and transformation in my life. I had an experience with the living Christ, and my life was completely and totally changed. And um, what a wonderful experience it was. All of my priorities shifted. I remember when I was there studying, I had, I, had, uh, I had given up pretty much everything that the Lord could bring to my mind, but there was one thing I hadn't given up. There was a girlfriend I had. Nobody knew about my girlfriend. So I would go to the little pay phone and call once a week and talk. She wasn't a seven day Adventist. And I was thinking, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to win her to the Lord Jesus. So I would talk, Oh, do you know what I learned today? And I'm giving Bible studies over the phone. And I remember there was one prayer meeting where the spirit of God. I don't even remember what the subject was, but the spirit of God just came down on me like a ton of bricks. You know, when the spirit is just resting heavy on you and I just felt like I needed to end this. The Lord told me you got to end this now, Stephen. You have resisted and you've refused giving me everything, but you must give me this. Or you've given me nothing. And So I went back that evening and I remember I, I I got on my knees and I knelt down and I prayed and I wept and then I got up and I. Uh, put my little quarter or whatever in the phone or whatever I used to do to use it and dial the phone number. And I remember sharing this news about breaking up and and that was the end. And I hung up the phone and I felt liberated. I was just like, wow. That's amazing. And there I was and I could sense I went back and I prayed and I could sense. It's like in my mind's eye, I could sense a smile on the face of Jesus. The reality of the resurrected Christ, he was real to me. And it was as if at that very moment he was smiling at me saying, Stephen, you are mine. You are all mine. And I could sense it was as if he was standing right there in the room with me in my mind's eye, a grin on the face of Jesus. He was Mine and I was his. If we've not had an experience with the living Christ. Then we will not experience what it means to be in one one accord in God's way. We may experience it the enemy's way, but not God's way. Now, I want to share something else with you. And this is it's amazing to me. (laughs) It's tragic and sad, actually. But uh, nonetheless, we'll share it anyway. And this is from the book of Acts. On the book of Acts, and we will look at chapter chapter twelve. Now, about that time, Herod the king. Whoa we got a few minutes here. About that time, Herod, the king, stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. Now, you all know, I'm assuming you know this part. This is when James was beheaded and Peter was placed in prison. Um, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, verse five. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. According to Acts, chapter 12, verse five, was the church praying for Peter? Okay, let me read it again. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Were they praying for Peter's release or deliverance or what have you? And the Bible says not only were they praying, but they were praying how without ceasing. So those were some fervent, earnest prayers. Yes. They understood uh, how 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 useful a tool Peter was in the hands of God. Notice the Bible says they were praying without ceasing for him. Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. He smote Peter on the side, verse seven, and raised him up, saying, "Arise up quickly." His chains fell off from his hands. The angel said unto him, "Gird thyself, bind on thy sandals," and so he did. And he says unto him, "Cast thy garment about thee and follow me." He went out, followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. So, listen, Peter has just been delivered from prison. And Peter can't believe that he's just been released from prison. He thinks, wow, this is a great dream. I'm just walking out of the gates and the guards haven't even awakened. And the angel is leading me out into the Oh man, this is wonderful. And then he gets out into the middle of the street and the angel disappears. And I guess the night air blows and he's wait a minute. I'm not dreaming. This is for real. Verse 10, when. They were past the first and the second ward, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of his own accord. They went out, passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, here's that, that Wait a minute, I'm not dreaming. He said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. What's that word? The what of the Jews? The expectation. The expectation. Now you'll notice. You'll know it's the only time that the word is used in this entire chapter. And it's about the expectation that the Jews had to kill Peter. But remember, we already said that there was a church that was doing what? Praying without ceasing. But the church who was praying without ceasing didn't have expectation that God would actually. release. When he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. When she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. They said unto her, Thou art mad. Wait a minute. You guys have just been in an all-night prayer meeting you've probably spent several nights in prayer praying for Peter and somebody comes and tells you that Peter is at the gate the answer to your prayer is actually at the door and you say you are crazy you're crazy but she constantly affirmed that it was even so then said they it is his angel now these brothers are they they, they're they're You know, there was a belief amongst the Jews that um, that each one was given a guardian angel at birth and they believed that the guardian angel was a, a, a twin, so to speak, or was an exact replica. Of you, So John Ross, you would have an angel that looked exactly like you. And they said, maybe it was his angel you saw. So they go off into some mystic foolishness to try to explain what this young woman is saying in Peter. But God has answered their prayers and the prayer is knocking at the door and they refuse to accept and receive what it is that God has done. I told you that the only time the word expectation is used is regarding what the enemies of God were trying to do against his church. His church was in an all night prayer meeting without ceasing, and they couldn't even believe or they didn't believe. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Why should they be astonished? Why should you be if you're astonished because you can't believe what you see, right? This is unbelievable. But what were you just praying for? How is it that you don't believe what God has done if you were just praying and asking him to do it? What type of prayers were you offering in the first place? Faithless. Faithless. But he beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go show these things unto James into the brethren and he departed and went into another place. Wow. You know what that says? We're here at GYC and the theme is Acts. The revolution continues, and we want the Holy Spirit to be out to be poured out on us. And, you know, in this particular workshop we've been talking about how Christ is the catalyst of the revolution and every single element of what we have spoken of together. It screams out to me that there is no excuse why the revolution should not be continuing right now in each and every one of our lives. And in fact, there's no excuse why the revolution should not only be continuing, but be magnified beyond what the apostles experienced. We said Christ is the key. We've got the lenses and we understand how to look at the scriptures so we can preach the messages, the same messages that they did of course relevant to our times all of the elements are in place the resurrected christ he wants to have a personal experience with each and every one of us i believe the real challenge is us we're just like the church in acts chapter 12 we're here at the conference We will pray, sometimes without ceasing. And yet, we have no expectation that God will do for us exactly what he's promised. So much so that if God were to move, we would not receive the moving of God. I use this example often when I'm talking to my church members about prayer and about how God moves. You know, um, you ever prayed for somebody? How many of you have prayed for somebody? Let me see your hands. You pray for somebody and you pray and you pray, 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 pray. And you're like, man, God, I want you to do this, that, and the other. And then that person that you're praying for, that person comes. And for some reason, whatever reason, in the conversation, they mention something spiritual. And you're shocked. You're like, whoa. And you say to yourself, I better not say anything else. Because I might drive away the spiritual influence. So let me just enjoy these three words that they've spoken about something spiritual. Let me just enjoy that and, uh, and allow that to sink in. And then I'll go back. To my little cubbyhole, and I'll keep praying that God continues to move. You, big, I'm not even going to say what you are. God just moved in front of your eyes and gave you an answer to your prayers, but because you weren't expecting God to do it, it caught you off guard, and you didn't even know what to do. Jesus gave the key. In the fifth chapter of John, Jesus said, my father works hitherto and I work in John chapter five. Jesus essentially says, look, whatever I see my father doing, wherever I see him moving, I just go and do what he's doing. So that person that I've been praying for when they bring up spirituality, when they bring up God, when they bring up Jesus in the conversation, that is the hand of God. Because that's what I've been praying for. Yes or no? That's what I've been praying for. I've seen God moving. And so, you know what my responsibility is to do? My responsibility is to move along with God. No expectation, no expectation, no transformation, no power from on high, no miracles, no increase in the church, no fruit and soul winning. But we're going through the motions. And church, just pray with me because I've been praying for my son for so many years and I've been praying for my brother for so long. And I've been praying for my cousin or I've been praying for my mom or my dad. And I just want you all to continue to just pray with me. And the answer to that prayer is knocking on the door. No, it can't be. Is that what? No, no. certainly not. The only holdup, beloved, is you and I. Is you and I. Continue to pray. But ask in faith. Nothing wavering. Because God, oh, okay, okay. This is the last thing I'm going to say. God is always working. Do you understand what that means? God is always working. Every time you see that sun rise, it means God is working. And if God is working to keep this earth spinning on its axis, to keep it revolving around the sun, if the sun is rising and setting on the horizon, if he's working in the natural world to keep this earth earth in its orbit, then you cannot tell me, you cannot convince me that he is not working in the spiritual world on the hearts and minds. Of those who we are praying for. He is always working. The next time you see the sun rise and you're tempted to doubt that God will answer your prayer for that loved one or that friend in your life. You just rebuke the enemy and say, no, God is always working. He's always working when he moves. When you move, Lord, help me to see it and help me to move. Help me to see it and help me to move. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Loving Father and our God, we thank you that the resurrected Christ can be a reality in each one of our lives. We thank you, dear Lord, that each one of us can have a living, transforming experience with Jesus. It can be as real as what the apostles experienced. Father. Help us. Lord, we've tried to blame the times that we live in and we've talked of the wicked world that we live in. We've even blamed it on the hardness of men's hearts when when it really comes down to it, your church doesn't believe. We pray like the church in Acts chapter 12, but we don't believe. It's evident because we pray without expectation. Lord, help us. Help us to pray with with expectancy in our hearts and in our minds, waiting eagerly to see even the smallest sign of your movement in the lives of those we are praying for, in the circumstances about which we are praying. And when we see your hand moving, help us to have sense enough to move in cooperation with you thank you that even when we are asleep you are always working and thank you for giving us the privilege of being on one accord because we are all tuned in to Jesus tune us Lord not to one another not to our own ideas or opinions, but tune us in to the Savior so that our lives might all make beautiful music for you. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.